We'll be uh, today in uh, Exodus chapter 20 at the end, so you could turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seats in front of you, you should be able to find one. And uh, church, if uh, parents, if you've got children up through fifth grade, they are welcome to stay here for the sermon. They're also welcome to go to some age-specific teaching. There are wonderful volunteers out on the patio. You can head that way and go there. So I mentioned in the prayer that this will be um, an unusual sermon. Um, I don't think in uh, all these years of preaching I've ever had a sermon that basically I'm going to say this. This passage is important because it's in the Bible. It teaches us about God, but these aren't your commands to follow. So that's essentially what I'm going to tell you. I hope, though, um, that for many of us, when we first became Christians, uh, the gospel was pretty simple and pretty clear. And much of our Bibles is the same. But there are sections that we read them and we begin to wonder, well, how does this fit with this? And why doesn't my church do that when this passage so clearly says to do that? And am I supposed to be doing that thing? Because I don't ever hear anybody telling me, nor have I ever seen anybody doing that. And so, while the gospel's clear, some aspects of how the scriptures work together are not initially very clear. And so, I hope today that we can think through that together. Last Sunday morning and evening, we worked our way through uh, the first part of Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 forms the basis for how redeemed people are to relate to God and each other. And as we looked at those Ten Commandments, we said that all those rescued by God must live for God by obeying His commandments. The Ten Commandments have never been about if you obey these, then you can become saved. That's not what they were for. That's not what they've ever been for. But rather, God had already rescued, he had already saved the Israelites out of Egypt. And on the basis of his work for them, he told them, here's now how you live as my people. Because of what I've done for you, here's how you're to live. The gospel, of course, works the same way. It's because of Christ that then we learn how to live as the people of God. We think and talk about love all the time. What does love look like concretely? What does it mean to love God? And what does it actually look like in day-to-day -day life to love people? Well, that's what the Ten Commandments are about. They're about love. Today we come to a portion of Exodus that's commonly referred to as the Book of the Covenant. That term is found in Exodus 24, verse 7. These are things that flow out of the Ten Commandments. If you were to flip your way from Exodus 20, verse 22, and sort of skim all the way through chapter 23, you'd find a lengthy list of statutes and regulations. That's what the Book of the Covenant is. It's a carefully organized list of things to do or not do under particular circumstances. 
Now, frankly, there's some odd stuff in the book of the covenant. Let me give you two of the stranger verses to start out as examples. Exodus 22, verse 6 says, if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns, how does fire catch in thorns? I am not clear about that. Maybe it starts in the thorns? So that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed. He who started the fire shall make full restitution. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And my favorite in this section is the end. Exodus 23, verse 19 at the end. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Hallelujah. (laughs) We have, uh, over the years, read through the scriptures with our kids at night. And... um, when we came to that particular verse, read that, one of my children said, dang it. <laughs> Just thought that was wonderful. <laughs> Grasping uh, this section of the Bible is challenging. It's challenging for two primary reasons. Number one, there's confusion inside the church. Like, what, am I, what do those mean? And what am I supposed to do with them? But it's not just confusion inside. It's also opposition from outside. I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. Think for just a second about confusion inside. It's not at all uncommon to find a Christian who struggles with the Old Testament. The the cultural distance is great. And perhaps even there's somebody here today that trusts God, believes the scriptures, and yet sort of down at a heart level, when you read the Old Testament, do you sometimes find yourself asking, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? This struggle is especially difficult when it comes to law. Am I supposed to obey this or not? If not, why not? These questions are exasperated by people who wrongly teach the Old Testament and who wrongly want to give away commandments in the New Testament and say, well, you do this all the time and then read verses from the Old Testament. But what about opposition from outside? There there is nowhere clearer a place that Christians sort of get uh, shellacked by people for not being consistent than in some of the verses we'll look at today. The book of the covenant is long, and rather than read the entire thing, I would like instead today to give you a sense of what it is, and then work with you along those lines of confusion inside and opposition outside. And my hope in so doing is that we'd learn not only this section, but what to do with every section like this in our Old Testament. For 19 chapters, Exodus has told an amazing story, hasn't it? Of God rescuing a people out of slavery in order to lead them 
to this moment at Mount Sinai where he would bring his people into covenant. In the first half of chapter 19, God lays out the broad terms of that covenant. That's what we looked at last week, in which God says, because I've rescued you, here's how you are to live. I said last week that the Ten Commandments still apply to us today. The reason for that is these are moral commandments that are timeless. And we see them repeated or restated in the New Testament. I encourage you to to look deeply into those verses. There's much there for us to learn. But then after those 10 commandments come the book of the covenant. And I'm going to say that those commandments are not binding on us today. Well, why would that be? Why would we have within the same book, the book of Exodus, commandments that I would say we're supposed to follow and ones that we're not? Well, one way to think about this is that the Ten Commandments are like Israel's constitution. They're the the basis for the nation being formed. And then the Book of the Covenant you could think of as the case law, as the specific rules and regulations that are a result of the Ten Commandments, but they're specific to particular time and particular place and particular situations. Now, I've entitled this message Rules Downstream because that's what they are. They're rules that are further down the stream than the Ten Commandments themselves. Now, one of the big principles you want to have in your mind as you work through the Scriptures in order to make sense of this And in order to have a good conversation with somebody who tells you you're inconsistent in how you apply the Bible, is that unless an Old Testament law is repeated or restated in the New Testament, then it's safe to assume that that's one of those laws that was for Israel in the Old Testament, but isn't for us today. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the goal, of course, isn't to try to get as many things off the table. It's rather to know what does God expect because I want to do everything he does expect. These principles teach us, nonetheless, about God and about his distinct people. For example, one thing, if you'll read through this passage perhaps later today or this week, One thing that's very clear is that all of life falls under the sovereignty and the sphere of God. In other words, it's not just your Sunday morning for an hour and a half that God cares about. It's not just read your Bible in the morning and then spiritual things are done for the day. No, it's God cares about everything in our lives. That's a key principle from these verses, even though the commands of these verses are not ours to follow. Another thing we see very clearly is that there's to be proportionality in discipline or punishment when commands are broken. And this is easy to see even in secular laws today. The Uh, result of stealing a pack of gum and stealing a car 
shouldn't be the same, right? And so that's very clear from these verses. Now let's think together about confusion inside the church. On what basis would we say the Ten Commandments apply, but the Book of the Covenant doesn't? Is this arbitrary? Or is there a reason in the scriptures why we would say that? Do you understand the question? This message will require more thinking than the average one does, all right? Let's work it with an example. I think that would help us. So look at chapter 20, verse 24. Chapter 20, verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offering and your peace offering, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Okay, we'll work with that verse as an example. Pastors, scholars, theologians, everyday Christians alike understand that this verse expresses something Israel, the Old Testament believer, was commanded to follow. It was not optional. But we today are not commanded to follow it. Why? Well, you'll notice that this passage is about worship. So how were the Old Covenant believers commanded to worship? And what were they to do when they sinned? So that's the topics. Those are the topics this is about. They were to use offerings and sacrifices at the tabernacle and then the temple. Are we expected in the New Testament to do this? No. If we were, we would find that repeated or restated in the New Testament. That's one way we know this isn't required of us. But that's not the only way we know. Think about exactly what the passage is commanding. And therefore, we'll see why it's not timeless. All right, there's that phrase in verse 24, burnt offering, burnt offering. When we think of offering, we think of giving back a portion of the resources that God's given us. But this is talking about what you do when you sin. So in the old covenant, when you sin, when you fail to obey the Ten Commandments, then you would go to the tabernacle with a male sheep, bull, or goat. You'd kill it, and then the priest would offer it on the altar, burning it all night. That's why it's called a burnt offering. In Leviticus, it describes the smoke that would rise up as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. That's weird, isn't it? This morning when I went outside, I smelt something burning. It was not an aroma pleasing to the chuck. <laughs> so what is that? Why is that pleasing to the Lord? Well, it's because it's, of course, not that the animal's burning actually smells good. It's that it's an expression of obedience and trust in the Lord. Isn't it amazing to think that it's possible for you to do something that brings a smile to God's face, that's pleasing to him, that's pretty cool. 
and that it's pleasing to God that after his people sin, they acknowledge it, and as substitutes offered. It's actually a very neat concept. Now, it's fascinating to me that at the start of Exodus 20, we, we have, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the, the entryway into the commandments. Then we have the Ten Commandments. Then we have the terrified reaction of the Jews. And then what's the very first thing that begins the book of the covenant? What's a set of commandments about sacrifices? Why? Why does the book of the covenant begin with commandments about altars and sacrifices? Well, because God knows you're not gonna keep the Ten Commandments. And so, as we move from the Constitution to the, the regulations, the first regulation is what do you do when you don't follow the Constitution? God, from the very beginning for his people, made a pathway that we would know what to do when we sin. It's incredible to me. The law shows us God's perfection and it exposes our sinfulness. But when we sin, God doesn't just wash his hands of us. No, he says, here's a substitute. An animal can die in the place of a sinner. Church salvation has always been about grace. It's never been about works. Christian, you are under no obligation whatsoever when you sin to come to church with a bull, I don't know where you'd find one, and kill it and then have it burnt on an altar. We don't do that anymore because the Old Testament commandment was always temporary. It was always pointing ahead to a much greater substitute, to a substitute who his sacrifice of himself one time would be sufficient to end the need for all sacrifices. We learn about this from Hebrews 10, and I, I want to read a, a rather lengthy section so we can think through this carefully, all right? Hebrews 10, we'll see it here on the screen. This is verses 1 through 18. For since the law, okay, the stuff we're talking about, since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, meaning in a lasting way. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll 
of the book. So this is Jesus talking to God. And he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offering according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. See how clear that is. So when Christians say we're not obligated to do that, but we are this, and we get confused about that, this is a great text to know and to go to. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here's the details of why, all right? Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus sit? It's not because he's tired. He sat because he's not like the priests in the Old Testament. They had to stand on duty because their work was never finished. Another sacrifice was needed over and over and over. But when Jesus offered himself and then rose again, Jesus sat down, meaning the work is finished. It's done. What a cool picture. 13, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. Why do we not come to church on Sunday the same way the Israelites went to the tabernacle? Because of Jesus. The moral law from the Old Testament remains binding, but the sacrificial laws have all been fulfilled. Jesus completed them. They were always temporary. They were object lessons, pre-enactments, pointing ahead to Jesus. So in the death of Jesus, the justice of God is satisfied for every person who would ever trust and follow Jesus. No more sacrifices are needed. Aren't you glad? Some of you would be broke, all the bulls and goats you'd be buying. That's why Exodus 20, 24 no longer applies to us. Now, the same is true for what we might call civil laws. So remember, in the Old Testament, you had what's called a theocracy. And that meant what, what we would say in our language today, church and state were fused together. And so the laws of the scriptures were the laws of the land. There was no distinction between the two. And so let's work another example so you can see how this works. Exodus 22, 
Would you flip over there to verse 18? Exodus 22, 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. A sorceress is a woman who practices magic, a, very often a fortune teller, someone calling on demonic means through which to say something about something coming up. Now, I'm not a fan of sorcerers or sorceresses. I've encouraged you not to play games or joke around about them. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say Christians are not required to put them to death. All right? If we were to exit right here, go down this street, about three blocks, you'll find one right on university. Been there as long as I've lived here. While I would encourage none of you to ever go see her, I would also say we're not sinning by not walking down there as a mob and knocking her off. Why? When the verse is so clear. Well, remember, in the Old Covenant, there was a fusion of church and state. And so the worship of God and God alone was mandated. It was part of the law. I said on uh, Sunday night to a question someone very thoughtfully asked about the relationship there, that the second half of the Ten Commandments, those ones that regulate how we treat each other, that a nation would do well to have those laws as their own laws. But the first half of the Ten Commandments, the ones about worshiping God alone, should not be a nation's laws because you can't legislate worshiping God. And if you have even a little knowledge of history, you'll see the mess that Christians have caused when they've tried to do that. You end up with a weak, anemic church because you're teaching people by virtue of being a citizen of, let's say, Switzerland, then you're automatically a believer. And that's just not possible. And so, while sorcery is not a good thing, the United States is not a theocracy. And so, we're not commanded to follow this civil law. Does that make sense? When Jesus came in the first century and began his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He did not say, the kingdom of God is at hand, so overthrow Rome and let's establish our kingdom here. He went on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. So church, until Jesus returns, his kingdom is present in the hearts of anyone and everyone who repents and turns to Jesus. And his kingdom is especially seen in his church, in the company of the redeemed, in the family of God, in the body of Christ. 
And so the holy nation today is not the United States or any other country for that matter. The holy nation is the people of God. And so we ought not expect We ought not expect that a secular government's laws would enforce everything the scriptures say. They're not going to. Second table, 10 commandments, yes. First table, no. Who is it that's described as the ones who are to hold Christians accountable for unrepentance? It's the church. You see, that work moves inside the body of Christ. So one of those 10 commandments is you shall not commit adultery. If a professing Christian who's a member of a church is in a chronic state of adultery and won't repent of it, the duties to deal with that in a loving way and evoke consequences fall not on the state but on the church. Christians don't mess around with sorcery. That's super clear in the book of Acts. But if you're claiming to be a Christian and you're messing around with sorcery, then we're not gonna look to the state to help you repent. We're gonna look to the church. Now there's a lot more we could say here but I hope that helps with the confusion inside the church. And if, if you struggle with understanding the extent of the confusion, just watch over the next 18 months as we move into yet another election. And you'll see how deep this confusion lies in the church. I'm thankful that that's not a problem we really have here all that much. But pray for brothers and sisters who are in churches that are choosing to align themselves politically rather than spiritually. It's a huge problem. Now there's a lot more we could say, but I hope that gives you a sense of this. Let's think together about the opposition outside the church. Another factor that makes passages like this complicated and confusing for Christians is that very often these verses are used against people of faith. They're used to sow confusion and doubt among us. So let me give you one example. Uh, this is from this book called Letters to a Christian Nation. Uh, a couple years ago, um, a, a guy named Sam uh, Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith. And pretty thick, he's an atheist, in which he's saying, uh, he's really focused in on Christianity and Islam, those two. And he's saying there is no need for faith. In response to that book, he got lots and lots and lots of letters from Christians, many of whom were claiming that America is a Christian nation. And so he wrote this, in response to them, letter to a Christian nation. It's written as a letter in response to what he heard. Okay, let me show you two quotes. 
In assessing the moral wisdom of the Bible, it's useful to consider moral questions that have been solved to everyone's satisfaction. Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. What moral instructions do we get from the God of Abraham on the subject? Consult the Bible and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. People have been cherry picking the Bible for millennia to justify their every impulse, moral or otherwise. This does not mean, however, that accepting the Bible to be the word of God is the best way to discover that abducting and enslaving millions of innocent men, women, and children is morally wrong. It clearly isn't, given what the Bible actually says on the subject. Now, it's important, I think, that we not shy away from things like this. So this is why I'm plastering it up there for you to see it. Go across the street onto the ASU campus and begin to share the gospel. And what you'll hear from the average person first is I can't possibly believe any of that because of what the Bible says around LGBTQ matters. That'll be the first thing. The very next thing will be this. And it will, might not be as well stated, but it'll be something like what Sam Harris is saying. I think Sir Harris's original question is a good one. What moral instructions do we get from the God of Abraham on the subject? So I'd love to interact with you about that. We all want the Old Testament to clearly, in no uncertain terms, rebuke and outright condemn slavery. It does not do so. However, notice those two verbs there at the top of the screen. Abducting and enslaving. Harris's accusation is that the scriptures tell us that God expects us to have slaves and therefore that's what you do to get them. Now I would say to you that he is not being intellectually honest because while the Old Testament doesn't outright condemn slavery, it does outright condemn abducting in order to enslave. It's right here in this section, chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The Bible universally condemns what we think of when we hear the word slavery. It does so from beginning to end. That's always been clear. What we think of when we think of slavery is the incredibly tragic fact that in the western half of the world, Africans were taken from their homes, sold against their will, and then shipped here. 
No such thing ought ever to have been done. It is evil beyond measure. And this country is still dealing with the effects of it. But Harris just isn't being honest because that practice, that kind of slavery is right there ruled out. What the Old Testament does not condemn, however, is something we might call voluntary servanthood. Voluntary servanthood. Instead, it regulates it. It takes the practice, a practice that we regard as abhorrent, but I'm not sure it's all that different than from something like signing up for the military. You lose any right whatsoever to decide where you're gonna live, what work you're gonna do, what your shift's gonna be, those kinds of things. You voluntarily give up that right for some period of time. That practice, the scriptures in the Old Testament do not condemn. We might want them to, but they don't. But that's very, very, very different than American slavery. In the ancient world, the most common form of slavery among the Jews was a Jew voluntarily entering into that kind of agreement with someone. It was not taking somebody from some other part of the world against their will, shipping them across the ocean, and then having them in your um, servanthood for the rest of their lives. If you got yourself in an enormous amount of debt or some family made a member made a financial blunder that you were responsible for, and it was of an amount that you could find you would never be able to make good on that debt, the way that got resolved culturally was you'd enter servanthood. You'd become one's slave. They'd provide you with food, housing, and work. And in response, you would work down that debt. And whatever amount of that debt, at the end of six years, you were required to be let go. Now again, you might not find that to be an appealing form of getting out of debt. You might rather file bankruptcy. But that's a cultural issue. It's not a moral one. We might regard this as less than ideal, but that's the way they did it. In that context, look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them when you buy, notice the word, a Hebrew slave. So this is not ethnic slavery. This is not saying black people are more animal-like, they're less evolved, and therefore we will enslave them. That's not what we're talking about. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. 
If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. I'll stop there just for time's sake. We might prefer that text say, buying a Hebrew slave is immoral, and therefore you must never do it. But God didn't choose to deal with this this way. This passage does not command slavery. It instead makes voluntary servanthood more humane. God took that this common financial practice of dealing with debt was something that he would say, don't treat them like property. And regardless of how much they owe you, at the end of those six years, you're done. That person's free. That's a far cry from stating that God expects us to keep slaves. All of the laws were about working out the Ten Commandments, and therefore you can see how we get there. In fact, I think this is the the big idea of this whole section, this whole book of the covenant. As God's rescued people, Israel was to live distinct from the nations around them. If you read laws, and they they do exist, the oldest one is called the uh, Hammurabi Law Code. It's the oldest existing set of rules and regulations. Compare it to the Book of the Covenant, and you'll find how different, how distinct Israel was to live. Most ancient law codes are filled with class distinction. This person is in this category and gets these benefits because they're in this class. The, the, these suckers down here, they're like stray dogs. That's very common in ancient law codes, but not among the people of God. God's people were to have a distinct way to live because they had a distinct God. Friends, we need not be embarrassed to talk with people about what the scriptures say. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, where would we go to think about what the New Testament says about slavery? Well, I think the very best place is a little book called Philemon. It's one chapter. Apparently, a, a guy named Philemon escaped, and he made his way all the way to Rome where Paul was in prison. He was converted through Paul's ministry to him, and then Paul told him, you gotta go back home. You gotta go make this right with the one that you ran away from. It's rather shocking. It's Paul's most personal and persuasive letter. Here's what Paul said about the issue of slavery. This is perhaps why he was parted from you for a little while. Paul's writing to the Christian who had a slave. That you might have him back forever. Verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What in the world would cause a master to no longer regard his bondservant as his bondservant, but as his equal, as his beloved brother, 
What in the world would cause that? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That which makes us equals. Because we've all been redeemed in exactly the same way. When it comes to salvation, I love what Galatians says. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In just a moment, we'll celebrate this oneness by observing the Lord's Supper together. That in Christ, we have been made one. Brothers and sisters, no class distinction, no ethnic divide, because we're in Christ. God, we thank you that you show us how the Bible is to work together. And we pray that you'd help us to glean from this the way in which you would have us to live and that we would be a people who are not confused, embarrassed, ashamed, or filled with doubt over how the scriptures are to work. I recognize that this has not been a typical sermon, and I just ask you in faith that you'd use it for the good of your people nonetheless. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chuck. Um,